Um, so we are in a series of messages uh, titled, The Gospel According to Satan. And we are considering uh, the lies, the deceptions that the evil one poses to us to trick us, to deceive us, to divert our attention from the ways of God. And so we're going to consider uh, another one of his lies this morning. And I want to start by um, asking you, has anybody ever heard of uh, the name uh, Temple Grandin? Okay, oh yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, just a fascinating life, a fascinating scholar, uh, got her Ph.D. here at the University of Illinois in 1989, and um, uh, based on her research, the livestock industry uh, was, was just transformed. There are many layers to her story, and she's just, and I wish I could just talk about uh, um, what she talks about in terms of autism. And, um, but what I want to talk about related to Temple Grandin is her research on the livestock industry. Stay with me. <laughs> okay. So she implemented, due to her research, the, the livestock industry implemented a more humane way of processing beef. Stay with me. Beforehand, the livestock industry, um, you know, livestock would head into the slaughterhouse, you know, in a straight line in facilities with dangling chains and shadows and streaks of light. And, and uh, some of the cattle were shocked with an electric prodder and it was high stress and cattle panicked, which led to bruised beef, which led to darker cuts, not for consumption and waste and et cetera, et cetera. In Grandin's design, cattle aren't yelled at or prodded. They're gently led. There's no surprises. There's no sudden movements. They're content. They're comfortable. They proceed along a smooth and curving path. She designed actually uh, a apparatus that would just lead the cattle along and and feel like they're going home. They're, they're brought to a ramp where they go through like what's called a squeeze chute, and it's meant to mimic a mother's nuzzling touch, and, and, and they don't even notice that a conveyor belt has slowly and gently lifted them upward. They're as relaxed as they could be following the herd, oblivious to what's about to happen in 10 feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they're happy, but they're happy. Yeah, killing them softly. I mean, you know, that's the song, right? Right? And, and, and I mean faster than a blinking eye, a blunt device delivers a surgical strike right between the eyes, and it's over. And that cow is on its way to your hamburger bun. Yeah. It's gra Stay with me. It, it's gradual, then swift. It's calming, then lethal. It's deceptive and effective. Yeah. Now, man, I'm a preacher, so, you know, preachers see illustrations in livestock. 
right? And, and, and this preacher read her story and her research, her research, and, and I thought to myself, well, that's the way Satan works, right? Gradual and swift, <laughs> calming and lethal. That's the enemy. That's the enemy. So last week, we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that the devil, your adversary, prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that image is an image of predator and prey, right? But sin is also portrayed with ranch and livestock terms. So Satan not only pursues you like a lion, he cultivates you like a rancher. Satan has a discipleship plan. And his discipleship plan consists of a path paved with calm deception leading to certain destruction. And I want to talk about that calm deception leading to certain destruction this morning. It's, it's a deception in the form of a lie. It's a false gospel. Do you know what it is? Do you want to know what it is? Yeah. Well, take your Bibles and meet me in Genesis chapter 3. First book of the Bible, page 2, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And, and, and what I want you to be thinking about as I'm reading these verses, I want you to be paying attention to this deception, but I want you to, I want, what I want us to understand is, is this is how the enemy still operates. This is not just historical information I'm sharing. This is what, the, what happened to them is what happens to us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
This is the word of God. Well, did you hear it? The deception, the lie, the lie that lulls you up the ramp. Yeah. Well, these verses convey to us really the, the elemental lie of the evil one. And here's what I want to do this morning. I, I want to just answer three questions. Question number one is, what is this lie? What is this deception? What's the false gospel that Satan offers in Genesis chapter 3? And then, and then secondly, what does God do about it? All right? What does God do about it? And then thirdly, how do we defend against it? Okay? So Satan, God, ourselves. Satan's deception, God's deliverance, and then our defense. That's where we're going here this morning. All right. Now, first, some context here regarding uh, uh, this chapter. Genesis 3 follows two chapters in Scripture on the glorious and creative wonders of the, of the Lord God. I mean, we have to appreciate what's going on in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 if we're really going to grasp and, and be impacted by Genesis chapter 3. The, the, God has created the heavens and the earth, and, and, and not merely God Elohim. I mean, that is the usual name, and that's the name is what we read in Genesis 1. But, but then we see in Genesis chapter 2 this, this name, not just, not just Elohim, but Yahweh Elohim. The, uh, the covenant-keeping God, the divine name. This is the God who is the only God. This is the God who defeated the idols of Egypt. This is the God who rescued Israel. This is the God who fashioned heavens and earth by his powerful word. God spoke and things happened. So, so Genesis 1 is not just a transmission of data content about creation. It's not just a catalog. It's art. Genesis chapter 1 is just this, this uh, divine, artistic wonder of, of the Lord God. And, and then in Genesis 2, we see that the Lord God put the man in the Garden of Eden and out of the man's own side, near his heart, from his rib, the Lord God made the woman. And, and in Genesis 2.23, the first human sentence quoted in biblical history is a song. A song. The, the man sees animals and gives them names, but when he sees her, he writes a song. And God commissioned them to serve as his royal priests in this temple garden and they were to exercise dominion over every living creature you see that in chapter 1 verse 28 and god surveyed it all and declared it not just good but very good i mean this is the account of human flourishing shalom peace and this is how the world began which means, and this is so important to grasp, there was a time when sin was not. So sin is not the outcome of God's creativity. It's not a defect inherent in God's creation. The heavens and the earth do not depend on sin for its existence. When, when the Lord is worshipped, when shalom reigns, 
chapter 2, verse 25, and the man and his woman were both naked and not ashamed. There's transparency, there's vulnerability, there's love, there's community, there's no shame. I mean, it is as God wants. Genesis 2, 25. Yes, thank you, Lord. Genesis 3, 1. It's an abrupt turn. Whoa. Now the serpent. Whoa, whoa, what's that? Now the serpent. Oh, and it talks. What? Feels more like an intrusion, right? An intruder. There's a false gospel that's about to appear. Yes, yes, yes. A crafty serpent suddenly shows up. And, And what you need to know, and, you know, the original didn't contain these chapter and verse divisions. And so it's like, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent. And so, so there's a word play here. It, it's, it's not detected in English, but in the original Hebrew, there's a word play between the word crafty in 3.1 and naked in 2.25. Crafty, harum, uh, uh, naked, 2.25, harumim, harum, harumim. And, 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 and naked, impl- uh, I guess suppose in English you could say this, the shrewd and nude. That would probably be the closest. It, it, I'm just telling you what I read this week. So, but that's, but, but, so, so, uh, so there's this, there's this wordplay that's happening. Naked, naked for the man and the woman implies that they possessed innocence, okay? Innocence. But, but, but the serpent is also naked, yet in a different way. He's smooth. He's slithery. His real agenda lies behind silky speech. There, there's a wordplay. The wordplay is there to alert us that something is about ready to happen here. Something is lurking. Now the serpent. Now the serpent. Why a serpent? Why a serpent? Why not a squirrel? Why not a why not, why not a rabbit? Why not a cockapoodle? Why not a cockapoodle? Why a serpent? Ah, we have to think the way the original readers thought. Okay? See, in the ancient Near East, the serpent was often worshipped and venerated. Huh. As a god. As a god. So we need to think how the original audience would have thought about this. And the text wants us to know that this serpent is no God. This serpent is not divine in any way, shape, or form. Rather, the serpent is a part of creation that the Lord God had made. The Lord God is God alone. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Satan is not omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, nor eternal. There was a time when Satan was not. Satan is created and contingent. And and so then presented as a serpent signifies that he is pure appetite. He's a crawling, slithering digestive tract who swallows his victims whole. Let's just push the pause button here. 
Israel had just been liberated from Egyptian slavery, and they were, they were set for the promised land. And when they got there, they would be surrounded by countries and cultures with a very different perspective of God. Will Israel remain distinct as Israel, or will Israel follow the herd in the world's cattle chute? What will happen to them? What will happen to us? And another thing, that the crafty serpent suddenly appears should alert us that Satan never makes an appointment to tempt us, right? Wouldn't that be nice? Alert notifications from the devil. <laughs> Bling! 15 minutes, right? Not going to happen. Satan's M.O. is ambushed by intrusion and inquiry. The first words out of his mouth, a question. You see it? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What kind of a God would do that? What kind of a God would put you in a garden park teeming with prolific, burdened fruit and then tell you not to eat of it. I mean, who does that? Who does that? Now, and, and, and notice, notice, and, and you'll notice in Genesis, sometimes God is referred to as God, which is the Hebrew Elohim. Sometimes the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And Yahweh Elohim is this covenant-making God and his people God and the serpent doesn't use that. The serpent just uses the more general name. He doesn't use the divine name between humans and God. He simply uses the less intimate. What's Satan doing? What's he doing? See, he's, kind of, he's trying to deconstruct God. He's trying to de-God God. He's, and he's not seeking facts, did God actually say. He's not seeking facts. He's sowing doubts. And the woman responds in verses 2 and 3. We, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now she's just nearly right with one exception. So God did command them not to eat of one of the trees in the middle of Eden, but the text doesn't mention anything about the prohibition of touch, does it? So it's a minor overstatement of what God had actually said, but, and, and several scholars noted this, isn't this how false religions start? So, so heresy is not so much the total denial of the truth as a perversion of it. So, she, so um, she, she constructed her own truth to supplement God's revealed truth and, and added to what the Lord God originally said so it's as though it's as though there's this desire to set a law for oneself by means of this exaggeration and 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 then there's the mimicking of Satan's word for God so so so, so Satan paints God as this cosmic 
killjoy and kind of just lures them along. And a wedge of mistrust starts to split the Lord God and his image bearers. And, and next comes, next what follows is a half-truth and then an outright lie. Verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, so, so the lie is that the fruit will not lead to death. And the half-truth, the half-truth is that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. There it is. There it is. That's the deception. That's the lie. It's the, it's the most primitive lie in the Bible, that you will be like God. Oh, how intoxicating that is, huh? What's, what, what's going on here? What's Satan appealing to? He's appealing to pride. That's what he's appealing to. C.S. Lewis called it the most elemental sin, pride. It's what made Satan, Satan. Satan's sin was the sin of pride. The Apostle Paul points this out in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, when, when Paul says that an elder or a pastor or a bishop, interchangeable terms, must not be a recent convert, or, or he may become puffed up with conceit, there it is, and fall under the same condemnation of the devil pride pride it's it's this it's the sin behind every sin if you know if two if two people want something the proud person will go after it not because he wants it but to show that he's just better than you pride is this thirst to compete and dominate for the purposes of power you will be like god the, the toxic power of moving other human beings around the board like chess pieces. Hmm. Racism is a sin of pride. Sexual immorality is a sin of pride. Winning at all costs comes from the sin of pride. And C.S. Lewis says, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. Because pride causes you to look down on other people. And as long as you're looking down, you can't see anyone who's above you. And that's what makes pride a spiritual cancer. And it consumes the very possibility of love or contentment or common sense. You will be like God. You will be like God. They're, they're being lured up the ramp they've been given everything they've been given everything and yet they're, they're, Satan is saying no God's holding back on you He's hold, you will be like God you will be like God in what way in what way look at the text look at the text knowing good and evil knowing good and evil so, so later in Genesis 3 verse 22 the Lord God says behold the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Well, what's wrong with knowing good and evil? Well, what's, what's, what's the problem with that? Well, let's, let's, let's define some terms here in this context, and specifically the verb to know. To know. To know here has to do with choosing or determining or deciding personally and for yourself. That's the problem. 
So, so God knows good and evil in the sense that he has the right to decide what is good and what is evil because his moral character is woven into the very fabric of creation. Do we have that right? So one, one scholar wrote that the man and woman, by eating the fruit, desire the power for themselves to decide what is and what is not suitable for them. And thus Satan's false gospel. Unleash yourself from this stingy creator. You have the right to determine what is good and evil for you. You should be autonomous from this tight-fisted God who is keeping you down and holding you back. So use your liberty and use your freedom to choose what you want for yourself. You make your own rules. You eat this fruit and God will be de-godded. You see what's happening? He's discipling them, cultivating them, leading them along this winding chute and up the ramp. Church family, the marks of Satan are not fang bites on the neck, but falsehoods in the heart. And verse 6, you just, you just kind of see it coming. There's the tension. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and, and delight to the eyes, the suspense, and the, and the tree was desired to make one wise. So there's this, there's this practicality. There's this aesthetic beauty. There's this promise of wisdom. And the, the suspense of desire leads to five rapid-fire verbs. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. He ate. Adam, verse 6, who was with her all along. Yet he said nothing. No help. No refusing. No confronting the serpent. No judging or expelling the serpent. No passing sentence. You understand. Adam and Eve had the jurisdiction to render judgment and pass sentence on this crafty, subservient creature. All of the creatures were, were uh, subservient to the man and the woman. And yet instead of, instead of, taking the serpent and judging the serpent and expelling the serpent from Eden, they conspired with the serpent against the Lord's explicit instructions. Adam's silence spoke loudly of his collaboration with and willingness to throw Eve un under the bus and then hurl himself down after her. And the scripture says in verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. Huh. See, Yes, their eyes were opened. But what they saw is that they weren't God. But that they were naked. Ironically, they who could now see hid themselves so that they couldn't be seen. And you know the very first human invention is the needle. Yeah, the needle, this symbol of violent opposition to creation. So, so, so that, I mean, it's not like they took fig leaves and put them in a loom and gently, peacefully weaved a garment together. No, 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 they sewed. They had to forcefully puncture leafy creations into a loincloth meant to hide their shame. 
Man, Satan's deception led to body shame, marital breakdown, and just wanting to hide from God. Wow. This, 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 is, this is not just what they did. It's what happens to us. And, and so Satan's deception, um, his device to draw us into sin, he presents the bait and hides the hook. He, he presents the golden cup and hides the poison. He presents the sweet and the pleasure and the profit that may flow in upon our soul and by yielding to sin and yet hides from us just the misery that follows. Yeah, man. He did it then. He does it now. Can I get a witness? Amen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, pastor, start talking about God. Okay, let's do that. Verse 8 says, they heard the sound of the Lord God. There's the covenant-keeping God. That's an important Lord God. See, even then, even then, the Lord God is the Lord God. And, and the covenant-keeping God doesn't quit on his disobedient image-bearers. That's true then, it's true now. Hallelujah. Here's the God who seeks and saves the lost. Here's the God who presses in. And verse 9 is this beautiful question. God still asks it today. Do you see it? Where are you? Where are you? Hey, God never asks the question that he doesn't already know the answer to. He can ask that of any one of us here. And, and the man said, well, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God says, well, who told you you were naked? How, how do you know what naked means? See, And then God gets right to the heart of the issue. Did you do what I told you not to do? Hmm? And, then, and then comes the blame game. You see it? Well... The woman you gave me. Right? <laughs> so he blames her and then blames God for her, right? You see that? It's really your fault too, God, for giving her to me. And then the, then the woman says, you know, well, it was the serpent. He tricked me. So, so, so they're, they're, they're offering excuses, and yet in offering excuses, they basically admit that something must be excused. <laughs> oh, Scripture is just painfully transparent about us, right? And, and don't miss this. The serpent doesn't speak. But God speaks. And he curses the serpent. You're cursed. In verse 14, you baited them to eat, so from now on you will eat dust. And, and, and though the serpent is cursed and remains cursed, God does not curse the man and the woman. See that? He comes to them. He does pronounce pain in childbirth. He does pronounce exhausting, sweaty toil from a cursed earth. So, so because you ate in disobedience, now it's going gonna, it's gonna to be an exhaustion to then to grow food, to eat. 
and there's going to be alienation in marriage. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He shall rule over. There's going to be this tension. There's going to be this tension. And yet, tucked away in verse 15, tucked away in verse 15 is, is a promise, a beautiful promise, a, a gospel promise. Uh, 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 Bible teachers call this the first gospel, the first gospel. It's there in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So, 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 so the seed of Satan will strike the heel of the seed of Eve. The heel, painful, painful. Gets struck, gets stabbed, gets speared, gets stepped on at your heel. Painful wound. But the seed of Eve will crush the head of the seed of Satan. So a painful wound will be countered by a lethal wound. Did, did you see, you remember seeing Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ? The, the opening scene is notable where Jesus is in agony as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as Jesus is praying, a snake starts crawling over one of his limbs and, and Jesus stands and then suddenly slams his foot down on the snake's head. It's an image taken right out of Genesis chapter 3. So, so by going to the cross, Jesus Christ, who suffers this painful wound, this painful heel-like wound. In going to the cross, though, Christ will destroy the serpent, the devil, Satan, who holds people captive under sin and shame and guilt. Christ will crush. Christ has crushed the serpent's head. Praise be to God. And this is why we worship. This is why we say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And, and so in the meantime here in Genesis 3, we see the Lord God providing animal skins to cover his disobedient image bearers there. That's verse uh, 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. They thought it was enough to sow leaves from an inanimate tree, but it's going to take a lot more than that to cover their shame. So God deprived the life of an animal to cover the sin of his image bearers. Again, it's a foretaste of what's coming as Jesus provides substitute for our sin. Covering sin requires pain. And God takes it on in Christ for us. It's a foretaste. In God's loving provision for Adam and Eve, he shows he's not given up. If while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He, God desires us. He wants you. We're his image bearers. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Thanks be to God. That's what God does. Now, now, before I sit down, what's, what's our defense here? As, as redeemed people of God, as, as, as ones who have been, who've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and, and so Christ has saved us, Christ is saving us, Christ will save us. What is, what is our life in Christ now? Here, here's what we must do. Here's what we must do. When Satan offers you fruit, hand it back. Hand it back. 
Why? Why? Because you trust God more. You trust... Satan is offering you false goodness. You see, here's the, here's the thing, here's the limitation of my livestock metaphor at the beginning of this message. Those cows are going on a one-way shoot. But, but there's an escape for us in Satan's temptations. And the escape is trusting in God's goodness and trusting in God's word. Defeat Defeating comes by believing. Defeating Satan's deception comes by believing God's word. So your, your ability to overcome Satan, your ability to overcome Satan is proportional to your knowledge of God's word. You hand the fruit back and you feast on the bread that is God's word. That's it. That's it. Now, I want to I, I I say something. As your pastor, I want to say something as your brother in Christ. Um, and I want to say something as your friend. All right? It is not lost on me that this is, in our culture, called Pride Month. It's not lost on me. Um, Pride Month is not just a recognition of new ideas regarding sexuality and and please again hear me I, I don't come to the pulpit feeling cranky or angry or I just I wanted I'm here to tell you truth not constructed truth but revealed truth and pride month does not just recognize new ideas concerning sexuality it, it is endorsing an ideology, an ideology that's been called expressive individualism. That is, making one's inner self the source of truth. See, over and above revealed truth. But that perspective unset is unsettling, church family, and here's why. Here's why. Just think. Think with me here. Just consider this. Imagine a sailor, new to the ship, new to the crew, confused as to where the ship is heading. It's nighttime. The ship's movements don't square with the sailor's training to use the North Star as a fixated reference point. And so the confused sailor asks, Captain, where are we going? And the captain says, well, we, we're, we're going to do things a little differently on this boat. You see the lantern? At the ship's bow, that's our guiding light. That's how we are making our way across the sea. Well, no wonder the ship's movements don't make sense. Guiding a ship by a reference point on the ship means that the ship is adrift, a voyage to nowhere. And I would just ask you to consider, as your friend, as your brother, as your pastor, human life is like a ship. And to get where we're meant to go, we must have a reference point that's outside of ourselves and outside of our world. We need a North Star. And, and we're, we're trapped because we've taken our eyes off God, our Creator, His Word, and we've looked within the ship of creation to find our way. And our minds have become futile. 
But the hope of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the Lord God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, has set us free from slavery to self and sin. And He's the ultimate guide for living a life of meaning and joy. Jesus Christ entered into the depths of human depravity to bring us out of it. His orientation was outward, fixated on His Father's will. Jesus lived in reference to the ultimate North Star, His Heavenly Father, all the way to the cross, where He made away for us out of nowhere to somewhere to a holy city so that we can truly say holy 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 lord god almighty and his finished work means that we can have our sins forgiven we can die with our sins forgiven and our names written in the lamb's book of life yes that's the promise of his word that's the promise and it's a promise for you now church yes so, so eat this book. It's your life. It's your life. It's your life. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for feeding us. God, help us lose interest in the world's cuisine. And may we hunger for you and desire you more and more and more. Reorient and redeem our loves so that they focus on you, on you, through Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Amen.